Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you back once again to another episode of Now Appalachia distributed all around the country and all throughout the world on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network as we continue spotlighting authors and Appalachia here on the program. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, and it's great to have you with us. And I'm so delighted to have uh, author Susan Zarenda with us today to talk to us about her second novel, and it is terrific, and it is one that you are certainly going to want to put on your to-be-read list. It is called The Girl from the Red Rose Motel, and Susan is our guest today. She's the, one of the first South Carolina authors we've had on the program in a long time. And so it's glad to have her here. Uh, she comes to us having taught English for 33 years to college and high school students. She also is the author of the award-winning debut novel called Bells for Eli, which came out in 2020. And she has also published and won numerous awards for her short fiction. She is a lifelong South Carolinian and she currently lives in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And it is my pleasure to welcome to our program for the first time, author Susan Zarenda to talk to us about her terrific new novel. So Susan, welcome to the program. So glad to have you with us today. Thank you, Elliot. Thank you for inviting me to be your guest and how honored that I'm the first South Carolina author in a while that you've yes. had on. Yes, you are. So glad to have you on. And uh, I know we connected back in the spring uh, when I just heard that this book was sort of in in progress and in publication pro process. And I was a book I saw immediately and I thought, yes, we have to get Susan on the program <laughs> because I think it's a terrific book and it's got so many important themes, I think, for folks that are parents, for those of us that went through school, for those of us that know people uh, who are who have children who are going through school and dealing with uh, all of those issues of, uh, of life and, and working with young adults, so many things to talk about. But I wanted to, uh, to ask you first about a, a couple of things that were at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book, because I think that really kind of sets the tone and kind of sets the background for this. Uh, story because this this book, The Girl from the Red Rose Motel, it kind of interlaces uh, several stories. One of Hazel Smalls, who is a high school junior living with um, her homeless family in a rundown motel. Uh, yes. Another senior in the school, uh, he's privileged, very wealthy, comes from a very fluent family named Sterling Lovell. And then their teacher, uh, who is very kind and compassionate, but also very stern and upright, and that is Angela Wilmore. But one of the things that really caught my attention after I read the book is I went back and looked at your at your prologue uh, and your dedication page and then the epilogue. And one of the things that caught my attention was what you had at the very beginning of the book. And it was a quote that I remember from Romeo and Juliet, but I hadn't looked at or thought about in a long time. And it comes from Act 2, Scene 6 of Romeo and Juliet. And it basically says, come what sorrow can, it cannot countervail the exchange of joy. Tell us a little bit about that quote and why you decided to put that as the prologue or one of the prologue quotes for your story. Okay. Well, I think an epigram obviously always has some kind of connection to the book. And there are two love stories in this book, one between Sterling and Hazel, two very unlikely, you would never think these two would connect, but they do. And the other love story is between the widowed English teacher, Angela Wilmore, and her divorced principal. Both pairs, I guess we would say, of, um, of lovers, 
face an awful lot of obstacles that really at times seem completely insurmountable, but they're not. And so that quote spoke to me because no matter how much and no matter how much trouble, no matter how much difficulty we have in life, there is always the capacity, I think, of joy and love to prevail, which it does in this novel. Very good. Very good. And we'll get into some of those themes uh, in just a second. But at the end of your book, when you were doing your acknowledgments, you, you talked a lot about uh, some organizations and nonprofit organizations in Spartanburg and sort of around the South Carolina area. You thank them and their contributions and their help in getting you right. ready to write this novel. Well, why did you mention them and what kind of role did they have in helping you craft this story? When I was teaching high school, the last 10 years of my career, I had, I don't know, that I don't really know the right word to use for it. It was kind of a bipolar day, I guess you would say. I had the four senior AP classes, which were the brightest um, kids in the school, generally well off from educated families. And then my fifth class was something called reading strategies. And these kids were the lowest in the school, and they had been assigned to the class to try to help them raise their reading scores enough to pass the ex South Carolina exit exam to graduate. And I wanted to put a student from reading, a, the kind of student that was in reading strategies with a very bright, and in Sterling's case, pretty arrogant young man in the AP class, they meet in in-school suspension. And that is and that is where their love story begins to take shape. Sterling has the capacity for empathy, but he really doesn't know it until he meets Hazel. And so meeting her, someone so different from him, but whom he is very attracted to, helps him to grow. And of course, Hazel um, meeting Sterling and sort of getting into a world that she's never known gives her the confidence to try to get out of the abysmal circumstances of living in the Red Rose Motel. One of the things I really liked is how you paced a lot of the conflict uh, that these two face once that initial attraction happens. And I really liked how it, it seemed like that uh, behind a lot of the, the interactions that they had and a lot of the tension that builds between them is class constraints, sort of workplace politics that's taking place, uh, both for the uh, their families, but also, uh, uh, you know, at school and for and for the teacher as well. I wanted to know, um, how did you structure that in terms of because it seems like just when uh, the, the two characters were going to get together or it seemed like, you know, Hazel and, and Sterling were going to make you know, progress. This was going to be the opportunity that they had to, to be together and to kind of let their relationship grow. Something came up that thwarted that. How did right. you go about plotting that out? What what did you did you have a timeline or an outline in terms of you knew every, every so often or every so many chapters there was going to be a speed bump, so to speak? To, to yeah, I mean, without conflict, you can't have story, right? I it was a challenge for me. I've never tried to write anything from separate points of view, and I. I didn't know if I could do it, but I, I realized once I kind of got in the rhythm, uh, you know, started with Hazel because she's the protagonist. And then I went to Sterling and then I went to Angela and then I'd start back over with Hazel. And I just realized as I began to layer 
the story, you know, the story arcs of these three characters, they they did blend together pretty naturally. And I was able to 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 make it work. But I, I did very consciously, of course, you know, present, as you call it, speed bumps along the way, because it's it's a real life kind of a story where people have to grapple with some pretty serious difficulties and through relationships with each other and strength of will and kindness of others they are they are able to come come through a lot of this you were talking about the those plot points and the plot points that uh, sort of keep uh, sterling and hazel apart but i also feel like there's another set of problems that happen for Hazel's family, sort of running parallel to Hazel and Sterling's, you know, will they or won't they or can they or can't they get together? It seems like Hazel's family goes through that same kind of circumstances where just as soon as you seem like they're going to get out of a a financial bond or get out of a situation where they're going to have a chance to better their family situation, something happens and pulls the rug out from under them. Was that that something that um, was easy to develop that given the fact that you were kind of doing this on the other track with Hazel and Sterling's relationship to kind of make that uh, also a thread that connects the family or kind of harms the family in some way? Yes, I don't. I mean, I don't recall having a great deal of difficulty doing that because I knew that Sterling knew nothing about the world Hazel lived in. He had to learn about that world. And he gets pulled in, as you say, to these various things that pull the rug out from under Hazel. But it's very real. I did um, a lot of research on people who are among the sheltered homeless living in motels and the reasons they end up in those abysmal circumstances. And people think, oh, it's, it's all drug addicts or you know, prostitutes living in motels, but it's not. It's often families who, because of external circumstances, things happen that cause them to end up in an environment like the Red Rose Motel. Now, yes, Hazel's father is alcoholic. And so he is somewhat, of course, responsible for their plight. At the same time, he got sort of cheated by his brother and he could not psychologically handle that. And he just couldn't pull out of it. And and so the whole family suffered, even though Hazel's mother got her CNA certificate and went to work at a senior living home. It wasn't enough to pay the bills. And they they got evicted and ended up in the in the Red Rose Motel. So I feel like the things that happen are, are pretty much true to life from what I've learned for folks that can happen, um, that can happen to folks living in those circumstances. And because Sterling has a bit of a background of his own, um, you think, okay, he's handsome, he's brilliant, he's arrogant, you know, what's, why, other than physical attraction, why is he pulled to Zell? But he has a past of his own. He was a, he was a very fat child. I know maybe I'm not supposed to use that word. And he had great big Dumbo ears that stuck out and he was bullied and made fun of as a child. So he understands Hazel feeling shamed and not wanting people to know about her circumstances. And that, that pulls the compassion out of Sterling because he understands he feels what she feels. And so that's, you know, that is deep down a connection that helps them build their relationship. 
And you mentioned this earlier that we've got sort of three narratives or three narrative tracks. We're kind of following the story from, from Hazel's perspective, from Sterling's perspective, but also from Angela's as well. And she's got her own set of challenges as a character that she's dealing with. One of my favorite scenes in the book is when the father of one of her students comes to her and is all upset and just really uh, beside himself, for lack of a better expression. Margaret, Margaret Atwood uh, writing that uh, Angela has assigned the class. Can you talk a little bit about that scene and what we learn about Angela? I feel like we learned a lot about her yes. philosophies, her strength as a woman in right. that scene. Can you talk a little bit about that scene and what happens there? Yes, I'll be glad to. Most of the um, scenes and plot in the novel is completely imagined, but there are two scenes that are based on life. One is the opening scene when Sterling and his cohorts take over Angela's class and get sent to ISS. I really, that really happened. And I really sent those boys off and they had never been punished before because of who they were. The other one is I encountered a man and his wife <clears throat> in the principal's office. Principal Kami said we had to have a meeting. This man did not like a story I had taught in my AP English class. And it was a, it's probably the most grueling, horrific meeting with parents that I had ever had. He was, he was just, he was a bully and, and he was sanctimonious. And I, I said to myself, one day, buddy, I'm going to get you back. But I, I mean, it all turned out fine in the real world. Um, you know, I got good backing from my administration and I went forward teaching the curriculum. I had always taught in AP English um, because it's a college course and I'm teaching out of a college anthology that was approved by the state. So it all ended up okay, but it was really a horrific. The man wasn't um, a, a real sanctimonious preacher as he is in the book, but I thought I'll just up it a notch or two. Very good. Very good. We're talking with author Susan Zarenda here on this episode of Now Appalachia. She's the author of the brand new novel, The Girl from the Red Rose Motel, a terrific story that we'll come back to uh, in just a moment. But Susan, I wanted to ask you first about your experiences, and I'm so glad you shared that some of this came from personal experience. Yeah, two two incidents. <laughs> two instances. Yes, two instances came from, from personal experience. That leads me to, to my next question, which is, how much of your teaching career then and now influenced your writing and influences your writing now? And then, you know, when your first novel came out in 2020, um, how much did your reading life and, and your writing life, I know you had some other things published prior to, to, to that novel as well, prior to um, Bells for Eli coming out. How much did that impact your teaching? How did both of those things work off of each other when you when you were teaching, both your writing life and your teaching life, and how did that help and and develop and 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 sort of nurture the other part of your life? Well, I, I, you know, when you when you teach literature for as long as I did for all those years, I don't have an MFA, but I have the advantage of having studied and analyzed and taught literature for all those years. And I think you just at some point, you know, absorb what it means to develop voice and conflict and point of view. It's not easy, but I had, I think all of those years of, of teaching literature helped me a, a great deal. And I, when I was teaching, I, I developed the course in creative writing when I taught at the community college in Spartanburg and I used a workshop approach. 
And I had some really good students and it was an elective. So you didn't take it unless that was something you were really interested in. And I, I mean, I remember that we helped each other. I mean, I would share, I was writing short stories then and I would share my work with them and they would give me some pretty darn good feedback. And, and then of course they've shared it with me. And then of course the girl from the Red Rose Motel calls on my knowledge of teaching. Angela is not me because she's a whole lot nicer and funkier than I ever was. <laughs> but I, I'm one of those writers who at least to some degree writes from what her map of the world is. And I have that real knowledge of what it means to be in a public high school classroom. And I'm glad that you found that it was authentic and came through. Yes, very much so. It did. And I was telling you before we started recording the interview that um, being a professor myself and spent having spent 13 years teaching in community colleges and working with that population of students, not not high school students, but that population of students, you know, there is not a lot of similarities or whether well, are some similarities, not a lot of differences in many ways between those two groups of students. But it just took me back. I remembered students that are like the characters in, in your book. I had colleagues that were like Angela. I was a little bit like Angela in some ways. And so it, it's really great to hear that those experiences, you know, fueled your writing, but also the work that you did in the classroom um, helped your writing and helped you, uh, you know, process. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Literature has been teaching. Literature has been my greatest teacher. That's great. That's great. So who are some writers that influence you? And if we were to wander into your office and look at your to be read stack, what books might we see in the pile that need to be read? I read a broad range of literary fiction. I will, I mean, sometimes I'll read a book, you know, just for escape and entertainment, like a thriller or something like that. But for the most part, I read fairly serious fiction, I guess you would say. I started out as a music major. And at the beginning of my sophomore year in college, I took an elective in Southern literature. And our male professor, assigned four female Southern authors from the mid 20th century, Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, Carson McCullers, and Catherine Ann Porter. And by the time that course was over, I knew that was where I needed to be. That that was my calling. I, and I switched my major to English and I've I've never I've never looked back. I always liked to write. You know, I had always, you know, done that as as you know, growing up and as a child, I was the kid who wrote the Girl Scout skits and all of that kind of thing. But the, so obviously Southern literature has been a huge influence on me. And I do read a lot of, of Southern writers, um, uh, you know, a broad spectrum, you know, some of the classics like Walker Percy or, you know, the, the best that I can understand Faulkner. But I read a lot of modern um Southern writers too. I've, I've just finished books by Jasmine Ward and Kevin Wilson. I just love, love them. Um, but I've also just finished a book. Oh gosh, what is it? Oh gosh, it's called Something Point. See, in this terrible, I can tell you everything that the book is about, but I can't, let me, let me get the top. So, and it's not Southern. It's not one bit Southern. Um, Fellowship Point by Alice Elliott Dark. And it's really, really good. I've recently read The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tolls. I finished not too long ago, Caleb's Crossing. I love Geraldine 
Brooks. I love her writing. So I, I kind of read all over the place with, with literary fiction. And I love Small Things Like These by Claire Keegan, who's Irish. And I'm getting ready. One of my next things I'm going to read is that little tiny book, Foster, by her. So it's just a wide, a wide variety. What is something about being a writer that has been difficult for you or been challenging for you, given that you've done short stories and had those published? You had an award-winning novel in 2020 that got attention from the Southern Independent Booksellers Association and a bunch of other places. Now you've got this terrific new book, which I know is going to be talked about when award season rolls around uh, later in, in 2023 and early 2024. But given all that, what, what is something that's hard or challenging for you as a writer? It could be with respects to this book or just in general. Yeah. The publishing industry has changed so much, I think, in the last 20 years. I think had I written a novel 20, 25 years ago, it would be a, a different ball game than it is now. There are just so many people writing books and wanting to get published. And it's you know, I'm very lucky. I'm just so lucky to have a wonderful agent and and then to have Mercer University Press want to bring my book out into the world. But there's it's 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 hard. There's a lot of competition. And and the, and the I'm a writer, you know, I'm a writer. I'm not really all that much of an extrovert or a networker, but you've got to be like that if if you're going to get the book noticed, because, you know, again, 25 years ago, you know, publishers did a lot more for authors. Now, a lot is put on authors to do the marketing for the book. And it's it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. We're speaking with author Susan Zarenda on this episode of Now Appalachia. She's the author of the brand new novel, The Girl from the Red Rose Motel. And we're going to go back and talk a little bit more uh, about the book in our closing minutes here, Susan. And we've talked a lot about the relationships that exist. We certainly talked about uh, Hazel's relationship with Sterling. And we've talked about certainly Angela's relationship with at least one of the parents at, in her school that has uh, a connection to her students. But Another really important relationship is Angela's relationship to Hazel. And yes. Angela does some things and kind of has a connection with Hazel that really helps Hazel kind of overcome a lot of not just the, the challenges she's facing at home, but challenges within herself and challenges yeah. that she experiences in a relationship with Sterling. Can you talk a little bit about that, about that connection, what, what brings them together and, and sort of how Hazel views Angela, not just as a teacher, but as something a little bit more than that? Yes. When the first character who emerged was actually Sterling, um, because he was based on um, eight miscreant boys who were in my AP class one year. And I wrote a short story based on that. And it got, you know, when it got published, I thought, okay, now I'm going to see what I can do with this. And I decided I wanted to give this arrogant boy uh, a a girl whom he could meet who would change his perspective. And then once Hazel began to emerge and I got so close to her and she began to emerge as the protagonist, I realized Hazel needs help. She needs a mentor. She needs something that her family can't provide. And so Angela's character began to take on more depth and and she does form this very close really almost paternal relationship with Hazel she becomes her foster mother after um a series of events i won't go into too much because it might be a spoiler but 
she becomes her foster mother and the two of them develop a deep and abiding love. And it just, I don't know, it just made me really happy when, as these characters kept, you know, developing and connecting to one another and and characters have a way of doing what they want to do. I might have a general idea of what's going to happen, but those three characters, as they kept living and they kept having things happen, they sort of take over, they took over, you know, and, um, I mean, I will say I have a, a young friend. She was teacher of the year in a county not far from me. She has since burned out and she's doing something else now. But she she was a kindergarten teacher and she became a foster parent to a boy who desperately needed her. And I watched that relationship and how wonderful and powerful it was for both of them. And that was one of the influences that made me decide that Angela would become Hazel's foster mother. Very good. And yeah, I won't say much more and I won't ask you much more about that because it's such an important and special relationship between those two. And there's a lot more nuance between those two characters than what we've said. So I won't ask any more about that because we don't want to give it away, but it's a really, really important, critical relationship. And I think it it brings it brings all of their relationships, I think, full circle by the time that Angela decides to make that decision with Hazel and what she does going forward. So it's it's just terrific. And it just was one of my favorite uh, sort of plot threads that tied Thank the story you. together. Thank you. I really, really enjoyed I it. I like their relationship, too. Uh, very good. Excellent. That That is excellent. So, Susan, I was reading some reviews about you in preparation for the interview today. And one reviewer from Southern Literary Review claimed that she felt like this was a love letter to teachers, that this novel was a love letter to teachers, because so much of what happens in the book involves students, is set in a school. We have parents and families, and we have Angela assuming the role of teacher, but also sort of a confidant and and parent and so many other roles. Did you set out to really maybe write this as a letter to teachers, or is this just something that as the story was coming together, it just kind of naturally happened that way? I think a little bit of both because teaching is in a crisis. And I was a very fortunate teacher. I, for the most part, had really good administrative backup. I mean, no, I didn't make a big salary. Teachers don't. So, you know, that's true for all teachers. But I I feel like I was so much more fortunate than many teachers are, especially since I've retired. And I, I mean, my older daughter taught for seven years and that was it. Um, too much to go into because time is up. But I wanted, I want readers to see that Angela's character does really reveal the challenges, the very difficult challenges in and out of the classroom every day for a public school teacher. I want people to understand how real that is. At the same time, I want readers to understand that teachers go into this profession because they're called to it. And they they do it because of a love for teaching, for their subject, for their students. So I guess in that sense, it is a love letter because it goes into both the challenges and the joys of teaching. Very, very good. So in our final moments with you today, Susan, if anyone has... Um, 
any questions about this book, they want to find out more about what you're up to currently, what your book is about, more information about that, about your previous novel, Bells for Eli, or anything else going on with you on your book tour, where can they find you? How can they stay in contact with you, first of all? Then where can they get copies of your book? They can find me and just about everything they need on my website, which is www.susanzarenda. That strange last name, Z-U-R-E-N-D-A, www.susanzarenda.com. There's information about both books. There are links to buy both books, um, especially The Girl from the Rose, Rose Motel, I hope, now that it's newly out as of about three or four days ago. That's that's the best thing. But really, the book should be available wherever books are sold. Um, I love independent bookstores. That's my first recommendation to folks to buy your books from your local independent bookstore. And if they don't have it in stock, they will order it. They will order it. But of course, there there are other avenues. You know, there are the big the big avenues like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, if that's easier on the reader. The title of the book we've been talking about today is The Girl from the Red Rose Motel. Our guest has been author Susan Zarenda. She is also the author of the award-winning novel Bells for Eli. And as we were talking about earlier, I know when award season comes around later this year and early into 2024, you're going to see this book on the awards lists and you're going to see a lot of awards coming for this terrific story. It is a great, great story about love, about family and about uh, what unites us and divides us both uh, as individuals and as collective groups. And Susan, it's just a, a wonderful story. The girl from the red rose motel. I loved it. I knew once I first heard about it, I had to have you on the program to talk <laughs> about it. Uh, and it was just a delight to have you. And thank you so much for the conversation and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Elliot, and thank you for those wonderful accolades and for reading this book. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out to the executive producer of our program. Her name is Pam Stack. She makes all of these podcasts possible each and every time we are together here on the network. And not only just for the Now Appalachia podcast, but all of the other podcasts you hear courtesy of the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Pam is responsible for those. So Pam, thanks so much for all the work that you do. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.